All right, back again for what would technically be episode 18 of the Main Polis podcast. Today's episode is a closer look at question three and subsequently question one that'll be on Maine's upcoming November 7th referendum ballot. Question three is the big pine tree power question, and the question on the ballot will read, Do you want to create a new power company governed by an elected board to acquire and operate existing for-profit electricity transmission and distribution facilities in Maine? Okay, so... Okay, so first of all, and before digging into the actual language of what's being proposed, if you've listened to past episodes, then you know that Maine's energy policy is not something new to this podcast. And I'm not saying I'm necessarily for this, but I understand why it's happening and why people are so upset that kicking CMP out of Maine seems reasonable. Uh, Now, if you've listened to some past episodes, you may have picked up on that, well, I have concerns about foreign governments having too much influence over our vital infrastructure. And that's what we find with both of Maine's largest utility providers, Central Maine Power and Versant Power. Central Maine Power is owned by Avangrid, and Avangrid is controlled by the Spanish company Iberdrola and 8.7% of Iberdrola is owned by the Qatar Investment Authority, which is under the direct control of the Qatar government. And the Qatar Investment Authority is not the only government considered a major stakeholder. The Central Bank of Norway, the Norges Bank, is part of the Norwegian government and operates in a similar fashion as the Qatar Investment Authority. They make investments with the benefactor being the people of Norway. Norges Bank only has 3.6% though, so a bit less than what Qatar holds. So that's CMP, the second largest utility provider in Maine, historically known as Bangor Hydro, was bought out by Amera and renamed Amera Maine. Amera Maine was subsequently sold to NMAX in 2020 and rebranded as Versant Power. That purchase happened, I think, after I last dug into this stuff for episodes 5 and 6. NMAX is only one shareholder and it's the city of Calgary in Alberta, Canada. And again, it's the same deal. Any profit from their investments are used to benefit the city of Calgary. And here again, we have an example of a foreign government having influence over our vital infrastructure. In addition to that, CMP, in conjunction with their parent company, Avangrid, and another subsidiary known as Avangrid Renewables, has been vertically integrating energy generation with energy transmission and distribution, to the point of what I believe is permitting price manipulation and other monopolistic practices across New England. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's dig in and see what exactly it is that's being proposed and what's in this proposed referendum that would permit the taking of private property. The first thing the full text of question three does, before anything else, the purpose of the Pine Tree Power Company, what it's supposed to do, how it thinks it will do it, before all of that, it first adds something to the current utility laws around when it's okay for the Maine Public Utilities Commission, the Maine PUC, to revoke a utility company's license to operate and require the company negotiate a purchase price so that they can sell their assets off to another company. Under Title 35A, Section 1511, which reads, quote, The Commission may, in an adjudicatory proceeding, suspend or revoke the authority of a public utility to provide service upon a finding that the public utility is unfit to provide safe, adequate, and reliable service at rates that are just and reasonable, 
The Commission shall provide notice and a reasonable opportunity for the public utility to comply with its obligations under this title prior to suspending or revoking the authority of a public utility to provide service pursuant to this section. Okay, so within Title 35A, there is already a provision that allows for the main PUC to revoke the license of a utility company. And if question three passes, then right under that section 1511 paragraph describing how the main PUC would go about revoking a license would go section 1511-A, which adds a metric for the main PUC to use in deciding if a utility company has become, quote, unfit to provide safe, adequate, and reliable service rates that are just and reasonable. But this addition of section 1511A makes the ability for the main PUC to revoke a license from something that may happen, but only after a long process of sending letters, providing windows to address concerns, suspending a license, and then, if necessary, revoke a utility company's license and force them to sell off assets. And there's something much more direct and proactive. Quote, the commission shall find a transmission and distribution utility with 50,000 or more customers unfit to serve and shall require and ensure the sale of the utility to be completed within 24 months if four or more of the following statements are true of the utility. So, as you can see, a bit more direct in its directive. Now, what are those statements that must be true before a utility company is identified as unfit to serve? Well, there's eight of them, and they go like this. Number one, customer satisfaction. The utility has been rated for two or more of the past five years among the lowest decile of utilities of a similar size for customer satisfaction on a nationally recognized survey of United States utility businesses or residential customers. And I had actually look up decile. It just means 10. So at the bottom, 10 of utilities of a similar size. Number two, reliability. The utility has been found by the Commission or by the United States Energy Information Administration for two or more of the past five years to have overall reliability in terms of outage minutes per year with or without major event days and the lowest decile of utilities of a similar size in the country. Number three, affordability. In two or more of the past five years, the utility charged residential delivery rates reasonably estimated to be in the highest decile among utilities of a similar size in the country, based on data from the United States Energy Information Administration and based on the Commission's analysis of average delivery rates as a proportion of the average total bill for integrated utilities. So, these first three are interesting. Personally, I generate my own electricity, so I can't really give any personal insight into these three other than to say, those are things I've observed others complain about with mains utility companies. The cost is going up, outages are far more common, which based on the people near me does seem accurate, and they, especially CMP, have earned themselves an overall poor customer satisfaction rating, which at times has gained the ire of the main PUC. So it's not surprising to me that we see these three on the list. All right, number four, employees. The utility has within the previous year contracted with a business to perform work valued at more than $100,000 that could reasonably have been performed by qualified, non-exempt employees of the utility. Okay, now I was really interested to see this one in there because for some time now I've suspected that CMP doesn't have nearly as many employees as they did before Iberdrola. Specifically linemen, guys that go out in the bucket trucks, 
I don't really see CMP bucket trucks out and about nearly as much as I had in the past. I see CMP pickup trucks, but I'm pretty sure they're outsourcing a lot of the heavy lifting to different private line companies and tree removal and pruning companies, which is fine. Nearest I can tell, these end up being local companies with main employees. I think some are even run by former CMP employees that decide to strike out on their own. But yeah, seeing that listed here is confirming something I've suspected for some time. I'm not sure if CMP or Versant have done a 100,000 contract with a single business, but I'd be shocked if they hadn't, especially CMP. Okay, number five, security. The utility owns critical infrastructure vital to the security and welfare of the state and is presently owned either wholly or in a part greater than 5% by a government that does not represent or govern the captive customers of the utility. So number six, customer obligations. The utility, due to its corporate structure, requires that customers pay for the cost of the utility's corporate taxes and also pay for shareholder profits exceeding 10% on prudent capital investment in transmission infrastructure with a little to no risk for poor performance. Okay, number seven, disaster assistance. The utility, due to its corporate structure, may require that customers pay directly or indirectly for 90% or more of damages to utilities' assets caused by extreme weather events and may also deny the utility access to federal emergency management assistance to reduce or eliminate these costs. Or, in the last statement, number eight, priorities. The utility, due to its corporate structure and fiduciary obligations, is unable to place the needs of customers, workers, or the state's climate and connectivity goals ahead of the desires of shareholders to earn a profit. So the main PUC only needs four of those eight statements to be true before moving against the utility company. And those three are collectively just saying you can't be a corporation, because I've got to assume that Iberdola's corporate structure and likely Versant are, in fact, exactly has been laid out here in that these last three statements. I mean, that's any corporation, isn't it? These corporations are obligated to provide a financial benefit to their shareholders, not to their captive customers. And it's not good for the shareholders to eat losses caused by natural disasters, and I'd assume that the cost of a corporate tax is 100% reflected in the cost of whatever it is you're buying from any corporation, whether that be a box of crayons or a box of crackers. Any corporate tax paid by those companies is reflected in the final retail price paid at the store, online or otherwise. So three of those statements apply because they're corporations doing what corporations do. Then the question is, are any of the other five statements true? Because you only really need one more at that point. Frankly, I'm assuming a few of the others are also true, maybe even all of them for CMP, but I know for a fact that statement five is absolutely true because the Qatar Investment Authority has an 8.7% share in Iberdola and the city of Calgary, Alberta, Canada has a 100% ownership in Versant Power. So we can assume that if this becomes law, unlike in section 1511, there will be no opportunity for either of these companies to make a corrective action to avoid the main PUC moving against them like immediately. And when the main PUC forces them to sell, this is what the Pine Tree Power Company comes in, because in addition to adding that justification metric so the main PUC can more quickly define what a utility that's unfit to serve looks like and the ability to, within two years, force the sale of their assets to another company, Question 3 creates a company to be there to purchase the deemed unfit utility. So something sort of interesting here is that 
Nowhere does question 3 add anything saying that when the main PUC forces an unfit utility to sell to another company, they don't specify who that company should be. And it actually has a provision that explains what to do on the chance that there is more than one bidder, which states that the utility company will be forced to sell to the, quote, qualified buyer that will provide the greatest net benefits to ratepayers. And, as we'll see, the Pine Tree Power Company has positioned themselves to not only be there, waiting to buy up these assets, they've included in the proposed law their stated purpose as a company, which is to, quote, provide for its customer owners in this state reliable, affordable electric transmission and distribution services in accordance with this chapter. And there is also provided definition of what they mean by customer owners, which reads, quote, a person to whom the company provides electricity. So another word for customer owner is customer. But so be it. They sell electricity to, to customer owners and customer owners pay them money for it. But still, Pine Tree Power's stated purpose would be tough for any privately owned utility to declare as their purpose. Because the purpose of, say, a private utility company like CMP or Versant or any private utility company is to provide its customers electricity well enough so there's still enough profit for its shareholders. Providing the greatest net benefit for main customers is not their primary objective, as it would be for Pine Tree Power. Tough to beat for any private company hoping to outbid Pine Tree Power. Okay, so where are we? Question 3 creates a justification metric for the main PUC that we can already see will result in CMP and probably Versant having their assets forcibly sold and how question 3 establishes the Pine Tree Power Company to be the company best positioned to purchase the utility assets that the main PUC are forcing CMP and Versant to sell. Now you may ask yourself, where will Pine Tree Power get the money to purchase CMP and Versant? Well, what the bill says is, notwithstanding any other provision of law, neither utility debt nor the incurrence of utility debt is subject to statewide voter approval, unless and until voter approval of utility debt and of the incurrence of such debt is required equally for both investor-owned and consumer-owned utilities operating in the state. So this is actually saying two things. They plan on borrowing money like any other business would. I believe those in favor and has been reported in the general media that proponents of question three believe that the Pine Tree Power Company, and this is something I haven't really followed up on and don't really understand why they would get such terms, but it's believed that Pine Tree Power Company would have access to loans with particularly favorable terms. The other thing that's made clear is that if the Pine Tree Power Board wants to borrow money, regardless of amount, Pine Tree Power's board doesn't require a statewide referendum to do it. They can just go borrow like any other company. So, for example, if Pine Tree Power wants to borrow, say, $10 billion in order to purchase one of these quote-unquote unfit utility companies, they don't need voter approval to borrow the money. They can just go and find a lender willing to take the risk. It says something else interesting, that if it becomes law that Pine Tree Power is required to get voter approval, then this bill says that such a rule only applies if it applies to private utility companies too. So, for example, CMP as it is today would need to be legally required to get voter approval before borrowing money. So, a pretty interesting stipulation here, but it makes a bit more sense if we jump over to question 1 on the November 7th ballot, because this is where that becomes relevant. Question 1 reads, Do you want to bar some quasi-governmental entities and all consumer-owned electric utilities from taking on more than $1 billion in debt unless they get statewide voter approval. 
And so guess what this one does? The bill specifically lays out that any municipal electric district consumer-owned transmission and distribution utility, so like what Pine Tree Power would be, from borrowing money, incurring debt, or using bonds, notes, or other evidence of indebtedness that would cause its total debt outstanding at any time to exceed $1 billion unless the action would cause the total debt outstanding to exceed a billion is approved by the voters at a general election. So what's that mean? It means that if question three passes and question one passes, then before the Pine Tree Power Board can borrow enough money to actually start buying unfit utility companies, they'll need to go and get voter approval. But according to the language in question three, if it becomes required that Pine Tree Power needs to get approval to borrow over a billion dollars, it only applies to the Pine Tree Power Company if private utility companies are also required to get voter approval to borrow. Which basically what that all means is that if both pass, question three and question one, it guarantees this thing's going to drag out in through the courts. Okay, now let's go look deeper into what question three lays out as the purpose of the Pine Tree Power Company. Because in addition to being, quote, established to provide for its customer owners in this state reliable, affordable electric transmission and distribution services, end quote, the bill includes a series of statements that specifically lay out how they would achieve the stated intended purpose, and they are as follows. Number one, to deliver electricity to the company's customer owners in a safe, affordable, and reliable manner. Number two, to ensure excellence, timeliness, and accuracy in billing, meeting, and customer services. Yeah, okay, those are definitely some things that CMP had reportedly failed hard at for some time. Got it. Number three, to provide an open, supportive, and competitive platform to develop and deploy renewable generation, storage, efficiency, and beneficial electrification technologies. Okay, this one raises an eyebrow a little. Providing an open, supportive, and competitive platform to develop and deploy renewable energy, storage efficiency, and beneficial electrification technologies. Okay, so first off, and this may be a hard pill to swallow for some, but if you want quote, to deliver electricity to the company's customer owners in a safe, affordable, and reliable manner, as is claimed in their first statement of purpose. They're not going to do that, turning their focus on policy geared toward experimental technologies. Because that's what's meant by develop and deploy. Building a transmission system designed for experimental technologies. First of all, I like where their head's at. The idea of setting up Maine to be a place where new technologies can be experimented on with a grid scale but that's not necessarily how energy gets delivered in an affordable and reliable manner. Energy needs to be produced cheaply for it to be affordable. Not something that is synonymous with renewables or battery storage at this point. You don't produce reliable, cheap energy on a grid powered by developing technologies. And unfortunately, we don't get grid-scale reliability that's dependent on large-scale renewable energy projects or with current storage technologies. As I explained in episode 14, is very much still an emerging technology. It's shown some usefulness for grid stability, but scaling up large enough to be a large or even medium source for grid stability, it's still not there. And then it's not clear to me what they mean by beneficial electrification technologies, because CMP gets greenlit for major updates by the main PUC and the New England ISO, like, all the time. So it's not clear if they'd be bringing anything different than what CMP and Versanta are already doing regularly. Okay, number four. 
to assist the state in rapidly meeting or exceeding the Climate Action Plan goals established in Title 38, Chapter 3-A. I was hanging on to the idea that maybe this wouldn't be somehow operating separate from the state government. They're admitting that their climate change policy is whatever the state decides it is. So anytime the legislature decides to change a rule or tighten up restrictions on certain types of energy or demand they move quickly towards some new experimental energy source, all they have to do to change the Pine Tree Power Company business plan would be to amend Title 38, Chapter 3-A as the legislature sees fit. All right, number five, to improve the state's internet connectivity through more agreeable access to utility poles and other infrastructure in unserved or underserved areas of the state, as defined in Section 9202, Subsection 5. So, before they've even gained control of the utility company, the plan is already set to expand into broadband as well, which, poor and lacking rural service, was what had initially driven the expansion of Hydro-Quebec. Okay, number six. To advance economic, environmental, and social justice, and to benefit company workers in all communities in the state. Economic and social justice doled out by the electric transmission company? What else could that possibly mean other than some customers paying more than other customers, based on some metric of income and assets, education, skin color, gender, sexual orientation, or who your ancestors are? Businesses could also easily find themselves with uncertainty, especially if your industry suddenly finds themselves in the crosshair of politicians and their ability to amend Title 38, Section 3-A to include specific utility rates for certain industries, with the idea that certain industries should pay a higher rate to make up for any perceived harm. For example, gas stations. Currently, public policy has us moving rapidly away from gas-fueled automobiles. What better way to support that effort than to require gas stations pay a higher rate per kilowatt hour? And what better way to promote the adoption of charging stations among gas stations than to have a cheaper rate per kilowatt hour for gas stations that also have charging stations. It may sound a little far-fetched, but I assure you it is not. This is exactly how public policy works. Sets of elaborate rules designed to direct society towards certain predetermined goals. Okay, back on topic here. That was number six. The seventh purpose they have listed here is to provide for transparent and accountable governance. Well, that's good but I've seen no plan on what that would look like, and we could easily be in a place where the definition of accountable governance becomes subjective. Okay, and the eighth and final purpose of Pine Tree Power is to support, secure, and sustain economic growth and benefits for the state. Well, again, not necessarily anything wrong with this as a goal. I'm just not at all convinced that such a goal can be achieved alongside some of the other stated purposes especially those placing so much emphasis on the shift to a grid that's even more dependent on renewables than what is currently required, and pushing energy storage, a still emerging technology that's not even close to providing the type of grid stability natural gas or nuclear provides. But whether we're talking new technologies or established renewable sources, it's just not enough. We still need natural gas. We still need nuclear. Renewable energies like wind and solar are fine and have their place within our energy grid, but a stable grid capable of providing affordable energy is going to require facilities capable of generating a large, steady stream of electricity that can be increased or decreased on demand and can provide electricity uninterrupted for long periods of time. And our current options that meet those requirements are few, natural gas-fired power plants and nuclear power. But if their default policy is whatever the state says, 
Well, I can tell you right now, current state policy is deliberately making it very difficult to operate next-gen nuclear micro-reactors. Have made expansion of natural gas facilities, God forbid, build a new facility, increasingly difficult. Main public policy simply does not promote that, quite the opposite, in fact. And our public policy, in addition to strangling those two energy sources, they're requiring companies like CMP and Versant to purchase renewable energy that simply does not exist within New England. This government intervention causes the price for what does exist to be inflated, a cost that's most certainly passed on to main customers. So, I was saying earlier that Avangrid is vertically integrated in a way that's allowing them to become a regional energy monopoly and manipulate prices. Well, on the flip side of that, state policies across the New England states, and more so than most of the other states, have enacted a series of measures that, without a doubt, caused the energy market in New England to be the highest in the country. The Renewable Energy Portfolio's timeline was created by dreamers, people hoping that the emerging technologies would emerge quicker than they have. So if the plan is to simply adopt whatever it is the state says, then we can expect pine tree power to also stifle the only sources of relatively clean energy we have available that is capable of ensuring reliable and affordable electricity, i.e. imported natural gas and next-gen nuclear in Maine. Okay, next, what's the deal with this pine tree power board? Where do board members come from? How does question three lay all that out? Well, they'll be elected, or at least most of them will be elected. The Pine Tree Power Board will consist of 13 voting members, and seven of them will be elected positions. The remaining six will be what's called designated positions. And so what's being proposed is that for the elected positions, they divide the state into seven sections, and each section will be made up of five state senate districts. So one member would represent districts 1 through 5, another would represent state districts 6 through 10, and so on up to the 7th seat representing Senate districts 30 through 35. And each elected position on the board serves a six-year term, but they've got it set up so that the first seven elected to the board, three would only serve two years, two would serve four years, and only two would actually serve the full six-year term. That way, the subsequent elected board members would have staggered six-year terms, like our U.S. Senators. Once elected, the first thing they'll do is decide who the six delegated positions will be filled by, and what the bill says is, quote, The six designated members must be selected by the elected members. The designated members must collectively possess expertise and experience across the following six areas. So one designated member would be an expert in utility law, management, planning, operations, regulation, or finance. A second would represent the concerns of utility employees and other workers. A third delegate would represent the concerns of commercial or industrial electricity customers. A fourth would be focused on electricity generation, storage efficiency, delivery, cybersecurity, connectivity, or related technologies. Planning, climate mitigation, adoption for the environment would also have a designated delegate. And finally, the sixth designated delegate would be responsible for promoting environmental and social justice, including the needs of low-income and moderate-income persons. And then they got a similar system set up for the first six they pick so that they too serve staggered six-year terms. But yeah, the idea being here that the elected delegates will select experts and together they'll govern pine tree power. Okay, I think the last thing I'll go into is whether there is any sort of plan 
or an operations plan or something that will guide the company's direction once they take over. Pretty common concern I've heard is the idea that there is no requirement for them to have any such plan in place prior to actually taking over the utility companies. And what the proposed legislation says on this is that, and this is from the proposed section 4012 titled Initial Five-Year Plan, and what it lays out is that within 18 months of Pine Tree Power fully taking over, they'll be required by law to submit a five-year plan to the main PUC. That must include what they're going to do to establish lower rates for low-income residential customers, how they plan to build electric vehicle rapid charging infrastructure across the state, and also how they're going to make it easier for fiber optics to use utility poles to reach unserved and underserved areas of Maine. And the last requirement the plan will need is how they plan to increase reliability and also expand to better incorporate renewables and batteries. And again, that's due within 18 months of them officially having full control. But there are some other sections that go into a little more detail as to what is going to happen from day one. So, for example, the proposal legislation explains that Pine Tree Power will take competitive bids from private companies to become the board's quote-unquote operations team. And this team would be the ones that would be responsible for maintenance, customer account management, and customer service and information, and to assist as necessary in regulatory affairs. So, in addition to effectively being responsible for the day-to-day -day of running a statewide utility service, the proposed law also requires the operations team to be involved with drafting the five-year plan. Another thing they got in there is a requirement that whichever operator they go with, they'll be required to hire anyone who was an employee of the acquired utility. And additionally, they'll be offering those employees a retention bonus equal to 8% of their gross pay for the first year, then a 6% retention bonus the second year. So current CMP employees would, at least in the short term, have a job working for Pine Tree Power. But yeah, if this thing goes through, that's how they'll intend to run it. They'll hire an operations team to run it for them, as well as offer bonuses to the former CMP and Versand employees to stay on. So as far as a plan for day one goes, or what'll happen with them running things with no plan for the first year, year and a half, that's how they'll run it with an operations team taking care of the nuts and bolts and giving former CMP and Resant employees a bonus if they agree to stay on as Pine Tree Power employees. The other thing I should mention here too is that in addition to requiring that Pine Tree Power get their five-year plan submitted to the main PUC within 18 months of taking complete control, they'll also be required to submit an annual report to the legislature by April 15th. This report needs to include details, quote, on how Pine Tree Power decisions, operations, and use of low-cost financing have supported and will support the state's progress toward the Climate Action Plan goals established, end quote. All right, so where am I on this thing? What I liked the most about the idea was that it would remove foreign ownership of our vital infrastructure and potentially be a way to break up what I see as a budding renewable energy monopoly of our transmission, distribution, and generating infrastructure. Well, the federal government has certainly broken up monopolies before, Microsoft, Standard Oil, AT&T, but I don't think we can really compare those to this because those companies didn't have their assets seized by popular vote and I don't believe their assets were then turned over to quasi-municipal corporations. They were broken up into smaller businesses, and some assets probably sold off to other businesses. There was an established legal process followed, 
and because those companies broke specific laws, there were specific consequences. But, of the negative attacks I've heard lobbed at CMP, them breaking laws around monopoly practices hasn't been one of them. And while I think Avangrid is operating as a New England energy monopoly, I'm not really sure that what they're doing, at least at this point, is technically illegal. And the only relevant example I know of that this was even broached, I discussed in episode 6, which wasn't Avangrid, it was Eversource, another New England utility company that's dabbling in renewable energy generation across state lines, and in Eversource's case, also has substantial control over the Abenaki natural gas pipeline into southern New England, which is used to power a number of large natural gas facilities. That was a class action lawsuit that ended with a judge basically agreeing that they were manipulating regional energy prices, but that they were still operating within the current letter of the law. And if I remember correctly, maybe have even been doing so because of certain regulations in place. Now, another side of this is that there are numerous examples around the country and even in Maine of municipalities, quasi-municipal corporations and co-ops owning and operating a local utility company. For example, and I'm pulling this info from a decent Portland Press-Herald article that came out back in September, looking at some of those main examples. And I'll have it up in the show notes if you want to go back and read it. Holton runs their own utility company. They charge 11.4 cents per kilowatt hour. Van Buren charges 12.5 cents. Kennebunk Power and Light, 13.5 cents. The Eastern Maine Co-op charges 14.9 cents per kilowatt hour. Then we get to CMP, 28 cents per kilowatt hour. For Sant Power, 30.2 cents per kilowatt hour. And then we got Isle of Hot and the Fox Islands at 32 and 39 cents, respectfully. And Matinicus and Monhegan Islands round out the Portland Press-Herald examples with 49.2 cents and 75.2 cents, respectively. So, and this is with the Portland Press-Herald examples, which, if this isn't all of them, it looks pretty representative of what I'd expect to see in Maine, which was that CMP, serving 80% of Maine's electricity customers, and Versant, covering 12.6%, charges somewhere between municipal and co-op-controlled utilities on the islands, and municipal and co-op-controlled utilities on the main. And there are a couple of reasons. First, it shouldn't be a surprise that the most expensive rates are from island communities. The added expense of being an island is steep. But why are the mainland municipal and co-op run utilities so much cheaper than what CMP and Versant customers pay? It's because of at least two reasons that I didn't even fully appreciate until digging into this a bit more. But those smaller municipal and co-op run utility companies are allowed to purchase energy on the wholesale market at a wholesale price and sell that to residential customers with the intent of covering costs but not necessarily making a profit. That gives them a very significant advantage over the larger, private-owned utility companies that have a lot more restrictions as well as requirements of what they are and are not allowed to provide for their retail customers. The other advantage they apparently have is that, unlike the larger utility companies that can't be so deliberate about doing so and can only do so across state lines, smaller operations are allowed to own their own generating facilities. But there's also a section in the proposed referendum that gives the main PUC the authority to grant Pine Tree Power the ability to own generating facilities. Not the state legislature. The bureaucrats at the main PUC will be the group to decide if Pine Tree Power should control transmission, distribution, and generation. I mean, 
yeah, okay, they got rid of the foreign ownership, but what is coming together doesn't even come close to addressing my energy monopoly concerns. But as a hypothetical, I guess it's a doable scenario that a utility company isn't privately owned and its customers have a level of influence over the utility company that most customers do not enjoy with a privately owned utility company. And there are even examples from Maine of it working. But those are all small operations and probably likely formed under very different circumstances, serving maybe a few thousand people with control staying at a very local level where direct democracy can have more influence. It's not statewide, and it's not serving hundreds of thousands of people as is being proposed with the Pine Tree Power Company. Now, there is a nearby example of something larger than a municipality or a coastal island deciding to take responsibility for their utilities. I'm talking, of course, about the province of Quebec when they took control of the utility companies within its province and created the state-owned Hydro-Quebec Power Company, which has a history of having the province of Quebec bail them out financially, has spent billions of state investment on boondoggle hydroelectric facilities that still sit effectively idle because they don't have enough export customers for the capacity they've installed, and while marketed as clean energy, they ignore and actively suppress the absolute devastation their government-sanctioned dams and reservoirs have caused locally, as well as its role in the ecological collapse within the Gulf of Maine, Scotian Shelf, and now the Gulf of St. Lawrence. You know, say what you want about how it is we do things, nobody's proposing we submerge an area the size of a southern Maine county in the name of renewable clean energy, and nor would such a project be approved here. But when your company is a branch of the government and a project has been deemed necessary for the public good, well, fewer questions tend to get asked. But even Hydro-Quebec, when it was debated and eventually created and expanded, it all happened through a legislative process, not by some up or down public referendum. Now, with that said, the structure of Pine Tree Power isn't the same as Hydro-Quebec. Hydro-Quebec is a straight-up state-owned company that gets money from the government for these massive hydroelectric projects, and they make no attempt to blur the line between Hydro-Quebec and the government of Quebec. The people that wrote up the Pine Tree Power proposal, however, clearly tried to draw a distinction between the state of Maine and Pine Tree Power. For example, while it doesn't appear they'll be responsible for paying taxes on any profit or income, they'll still be responsible for paying property taxes. Yes, over half the board are elected, but the rest are coming from private sector. And any layer of employee under the board won't be a state employee like our main DOT people are, and they won't even technically be employees of Pine Tree Power. They'll be employed by a private contractor with an agreement to operate the day-to-day -day functions of Pine Tree Power. It's also very clearly worded that any debt the Pine Tree Power Board agrees to take on, the state of Maine cannot be held liable and are under no obligation to repay anything Pine Tree Power owes to anyone. So if this passes, and several years from now when the court dust settles and the Pine Tree Power Board assumes full control, it could go at least a couple different ways. There's some decent community-controlled utility services, but we also know what a large-scale government-run utility operation can look like and what can happen from that scenario. So what scenario is question three proposing? Well, unless there's a change to the law after this were to pass, I don't see them being allowed to purchase from the wholesale market and sell to retail customers like the small quasi-municipal-owned utilities can. It would defeat the purpose of how they've set up the renewable portfolio rules. But if Pine Tree Power can show that owning their own generation is necessary for grid stability or whatever, then the main PUC will let them start owning generation facilities. And at that point, 
is clearly then put on a path toward a state-sanctioned monopoly operating our infrastructure, which, by the way, if this passes, and this would be projecting based on a few what-ifs, but if we get to a point where Pine Tree Power is in full control, and in their five-year plan it's laid out that in order to meet the state's climate change goals and keep prices equitable, will require in-state renewable energy facilities. And they've already set the example of just force selling transmission and distribution assets. It's not much of a leap to do it to generating facilities next. It would start with solar farms, wind farms, maybe hydroelectric dams that have any foreign ownership, and likely borrowing money to expand capacity. And just a quick refresher of what that would end up doing regionally, a lot of the renewable energy produced in Maine, especially wind energy, is not used to help Maine meet our carbon reduction goals. It's used to help Massachusetts meet their carbon reduction goals because they can make more money selling to Massachusetts than they can to Maine. Well, that would likely end pretty quick when Pine Tree Power starts assuming control of those two, leaving Massachusetts even further from reaching their goals. So conceptually, this does start to get interesting because we started with the seizing of assets in the name of the people of Maine, and then the plan would be to have a board made up of elected politicians and energy sector professionals, hire a private company to run Pine Tree Power while the board submits annual reports to the legislature and develops a company's long-term plans every five years for the Maine PUC to approve. Then you look through what's laid out as the purpose of Pine Tree Power and what is expected of the five-year plan a lot of which is effectively just rewording state renewable energy policy, and so they end up required to run the Pine Tree Power Company with goals and aspirations effectively determined by the state legislature and main PUC bureaucrats. So, as far as the idea goes that this isn't actually a government-run entity, it's some sort of customer-owned or quasi-municipal private business or some such thing, that's not what I'm seeing created here. Because here, we see not only politicians and private sector experts governing hand-in-hand, hand, we see this board legally mandated to take policies passed by the state legislature and implementing them as business goals, and relying on that to run a statewide energy company. And remember, the actual board will be made up of actual elected politicians, which means a whole other set of elections during the election cycle. How much money do you think a mystery private donor and faceless super PAC will blow on just one of those elections? And what do you suppose the odds are that some of the biggest donors will have connections to some of the same folks being chosen as quote-unquote experts? The flip side of that is that they pick people without any real-world knowledge of operating a grid whatsoever, but are well-versed in environmental and social justice policy. Either way, the people making decisions will most certainly not be their customer owners, because their only input will be at the ballot box. Oof, I don't know. I like that this could be a path away from a foreign-owned monopoly of our energy sector, but it seems sort of likely that this way of doing that will eventually create a state-controlled monopoly of our energy sector. I do think it's pretty silly that, if we're going to mandate renewable energy for Mainers, then maybe approving projects that will feed Massachusetts isn't the answer. But should we manipulate the market even further in order to restrict in-state generator renewables from being sold out of state? Maybe. It's possible since the entire ISO market is constructed, maintained, and manipulated as necessary by ISO New England. Episode 5 for a deep dive on how that works. So from a straight public policy perspective, this could get really interesting over the next few years if this moves forward and Maine starts pushing up against our legislated climate goal deadlines. 
But from a political philosophy perspective, it is a bit concerning. This is not how a private business operates in this country. It's frankly more reminiscent of what you'd expect a private business in China to operate like. A certain level of autonomy in their day-to-day operations, but their future direction, their five-year plan as it were, is going to be lockstep with whatever five-year plan the Chinese Communist Party has implemented. It's too bad too, because I think there is something to getting foreign influence out of vital infrastructure, but I'm not sure replacing it with a state-controlled monopoly is the answer either. Which is a shame too, I think, because... I do also like the idea of community-owned infrastructure that can operate based on the needs of their community, not that of the state or that of a foreign investor. And actually, if you were a person or organization was truly opposed to what Pine Tree Power is about and it wins on November 7th, the solution, I think, would be to push even further and start setting up the laws to make it very easy for a municipality or quasi-municipal company start picking off Pine Tree Power's recently acquired assets. And they could do the same thing Pine Tree Power would do, get a board together and contract out with a private business to actually operate their municipal grid. Whew, all sorts of possible outcomes if this question three passes, but I need to wrap this up. Share the show if you like it. I usually put them up on the Facebook page, search for the main polis, that should bring it up. Or you can go to themainpolis.com. I've got episodes posted up there with a share button too. All right, that's all I got. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to vote.